Now turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. We are beginning a new series today through this second book of the Bible. And Exodus, of course, is a foundational book if we are to understand the history of God's dealings with his people. It is, of course, more than simply a history. It is the record of God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And then, of course, it records the way that God began to order their lives together, to structure their life together as his covenant-redeemed people. And the Exodus event, as you may know, becomes the Old Testament paradigm for salvation, the prime way of understanding, the prime picture, through the prime lens through which God's Old Covenant people understood God's saving acts towards them, the way God rescues and redeems his people. The Exodus story, in other words, is the gospel story of rescue and redemption, but in Old Testament categories. It tells us of God's promises and power and sovereignty, saving a people for his own glory. And of course, the climactic moment of deliverance on account of the shed blood of the Lamb on that Passover night. It is in many ways the book of Exodus. It is in many ways the gospel foreshadowed. And I'm looking forward to studying through this marvelous book with you for the months to come. So chapter 1, let's look to it now. We'll read it, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. This is God's holy word. Hear it. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Oh, Lord, you do speak to us by your word. And as you do, we pray that you would pour out your spirit. Save us from the way our sin distorts the truth. And instead, please bring us to a place of submission to it, resting on the Christ who comes to us by this word. Feed us on Christ and on his promises as we study these things together. And by them, strengthen us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we do ask these things. Amen. People of the human race, including Christians, myself, yourself included, often suffer from what we call tunnel vision. We tend to think only in the here and now. The chores, the the problems of this day or this week, never mind what might be happening a year from now or across the world. In in the heat of our pain or in the heat of our, in the thick of our problems, it's understandable. We get fixated on those particular issues. But we often get so fixated on them that we never give a thought beyond them. We can't see past the end of our nose, as your grandfather may have said. In the midst of our trouble, we cannot see beyond the immediacy of our own situation. There's this problem in my life, in in my family, in in my neighborhood, in, in my congregation, in my country, and frankly, nothing else matters. And that's not to say that the pain and the frustrations aren't real, because they are. We... We live in the post-Obergefell world, and the floodgates are wide open, aren't they, for same-sex marriage and a whole host of other social sins. Political and ideological tensions are bringing violence to our streets. Washington frustrates all of us. Who knows what North Korea and Russia and China are playing at, and we could go on and on and on. In many ways, these are dark days, aren't they? which is why it's so important for us to arm ourselves with a biblical philosophy of history, to understand this world in which we live, and to understand its events from the vantage point of God's grand design. I I can't see past the end of my nose, and so, so often I forget to ask, Lord, what are you up to? One pastor is famous for saying this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life And at any given moment, you might be aware of three of them. And I think he's absolutely right. We need some theological perspective. And Exodus chapter 1 helps us with that. So I want us to see three things from this opening chapter of this wonderful book of Scripture. First, we see in verses 1 through 7, we are reminded that there's a larger story. There's a larger story at play here. And then in verses 8 through 22, there's a struggle And our struggle, and the struggle of these Hebrews, is actually part of a wider conflict. There's a struggle, ours, yours, even the Hebrews, is part of a wider conflict. And then the whole passage, the whole chapter, reminds us that our security rests on a solid foundation. So three things, a larger story, a wider conflict, and a firm foundation. Let's think through those three things together as we study the text today. Let's look at verses 1 to 7. First of all, a larger story. Now, here in our English Bibles, and and I'm reading from the ESV translation, you might have the New American Standard or the New King James or something like that. But many times in our English Bibles, the translations will smooth the wording over so that it reads a bit more naturally. 
the Hebrew honestly can be a bit awkward at times if we take it very woodenly. And here, the Hebrew begins a little bit strangely. At the very beginning of the very first verse of the very first chapter of Exodus, the first word in Hebrew is literally and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. The book of Exodus, you see, starts as if the book of Genesis had never ended. It's written in a way to make the point that Exodus is not disconnected. It's not a disconnected tale of events happening at a time and place remote from anything else that God has said or done. It is rather the continuation of the story. One man calls it Genesis Act 2. That's what Exodus is. Genesis Act 2. You see here the context, the 11 sons of Jacob of Israel. They've moved with their families into Egypt. They're listed for us. They're in verses 2 and 3 and 4 with the total number of people who made the journey along with them. So 70 people went down to live in Egypt. And you'll recall that Joseph, the 12th son, had some time ago been sold into slavery by his brothers. And this is the story uh, that occupies that last cycle of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery and how by God's providence, Joseph the slave becomes prime minister, second in command over all the kingdom of Egypt, the greatest world power in the known world at the time. And when great famine came, as God had told Joseph, Joseph was able to make provision not only for the kingdom of Egypt, but even for his own family. And he brought his family out of starvation and out of destitution to live with him in the safety of the kingdom of Egypt. That's the gist of that last cycle, that last section of the book of Genesis. And it's summarized here for us in these opening verses of Exodus chapter 1. But soon, however, that original generation died off. You see there in verse 6, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now that seems like a, a, an innocent enough reporting of the facts. Now the family of Jacob grew and, and became an entire people group. True enough. But Moses is carefully using key words to remind us of that earlier Genesis story yet again. We've, we've heard this language before. Maybe your ears pricked up or perked up when I was reading through it the first time. Moses wants us to understand what's going on because this is the same language that God used with Adam, commanding Adam way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in the Garden of Eden. He commanded him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It's language that gets repeated after the flood. With Noah in Genesis 9, remember God tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's language that is used again and transformed into a promise. Later on in the covenant God made with Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abram, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply, multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Repeat it again in the promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, Genesis 26, verse 4. And later again to Jacob, Isaac's son, Genesis 35, verse 11. I am God Almighty, Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. So the original command of creation, taken up in the special covenant promise between God and Abraham, between God and Isaac, between God and Jacob, that's what stands behind the language of Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It is the great backdrop behind all of which Moses is saying here in this opening chapter of the book of Exodus. In other words, God is keeping his promises. 
God is keeping his promises. Don't we need to be reminded of that? No matter the difficulties facing us, and as we'll see here in a moment as we study through this chapter, there are, there are profound difficulties facing the people of Israel. Isn't it helpful? Isn't it so necessary to be reminded that God is working his purposes out as a year succeeds to a year amidst the darkness and the hostilities that we're facing, amidst all the challenges that are ravaging our own time and moment at this point in history, the promise and the mandate of God advances nevertheless. That that our small stories are actually part of a much larger drama in which the agenda of God Almighty is being accomplished no matter what or how things may appear to be to us. One man, I I noticed this eh, as I was researching for this studying up for the sermon, one man wrote about an article that he found in The Economist magazine a number of years ago. And in that article, it was speaking about Jeff Bezos, the former CEO of Amazon. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Bezos has invested $42 million in a project constructing a 10,000-year clock that's being built inside of a mountain in Texas. Uh, apparently, you can go and visit this thing, and when it's finished, you'll be able to take a tour and see key dates through history as they're recorded, as the years roll on. A 10,000-year clock. We're lucky if our watch batteries last for six months to a year, and this guy's building a 10,000-year clock. Bezos, on the project's website, called it an icon for long-term thinking. An icon for long-term thinking. And you know, in much the same way, that's what Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 is. It's an icon for long-term thinking. It serves to remind us that our lives are part of a bigger story in which God's promises and purposes are fulfilled, and they're fulfilled not most of the time, not two-thirds of the time. They are fulfilled 100% of the time. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 1 verse 7 asks us to put ourselves in a context, in, a, in perspective, in light of the overarching sovereign purposes of the God of infinite glory. I say all that simply to say, beloved brothers and sisters, Don't let your present experiences, don't let the pain of today, however real and however serious it is, don't let it define for you the limit of God's faithfulness to his plan. Keep your trials in perspective. Develop long-term thinking. Because our story is part of a much larger drama in which God's purposes always will out and his purposes never fail. (laughs) They never fail. The story of the children of Israel, as well as the story of God's children here in East Tennessee, is part of a much larger drama of what the Lord God Almighty is up to. We need to keep that perspective in mind in all things and develop that long-term, biblical, covenantal, promise-assured, sovereignly-guaranteed scope of thinking. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. A, a, A larger story, a larger drama... But then secondly, notice that the struggle that God's people endure is part of a larger conflict or a wider conflict. We see this in verses 8 to 22. Notice how that section opens there. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, it's not so much that this king had never heard of the man. Frankly, it's rather unthinkable that a king of Egypt would never have heard of the man who saved his nation. Sort of like every school child here has heard of George Washington. Everyone knows who the first president of the United States is. It's George Washington. 
Even if you don't know the details of his life, where he was born, or where he died, or, or what he did during his presidency, you know there was this man named George Washington who was the father, the so-called father of our country. Surely a king of Egypt would have known the story of how this foreigner, this Hebrew foreigner, saved his land out of destitution and starvation. Now, it's not, it's not so much that this king did not know the history of his own nation or a significant figure within his nation's history, but rather it means that this new king does not care to pay respect to Joseph's memory or to his people. The new pharaoh sees the growing Hebrew nation within his borders as a threat to national security, or perhaps even a threat to his own ambitions. They are, he says there in verse 9, too many and too mighty for us. His fear is that the Hebrews will make allies with his enemies outside of their country's borders and seek to overcome him. And so his first solution to the problem is, verse 11, to subjugate the people to make them slaves. See there, verse 11? They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh, driven by self-interest, driven by political expediency, maybe driven by other kinds of sinful inclinations, he's willing to subject an entire people to bondage and suffering. Now, it's a terrible situation, but it actually contains an important biblical principle for God's people in every age. And that is, with the experience of blessing, often comes an experience of suffering, many times hand in hand. God was blessing his covenant people. We saw that back in verse 7. They're growing, they're fruitful, they're multiplying. God is keeping his covenant promises. He's doing what he said he would do, filling the earth with that, that seed of Abraham, that godly seed from Eve, that lineage. And yet with that blessing comes a reaction. There is hostility and animosity and insecurity and outright oppression as Pharaoh observes how the Lord God is blessing them. Now that's a hard lesson to learn, but it's one that's vital for us, I dare say. The blessing of God does not mean the absence of suffering. Can I say that again? The blessing of God does not mean the absence of suffering. In fact, very often it means the opposite. As Jesus put it in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. Or Paul in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of God. How much confusion and how much sadness we might be spared, friends, if we saw that our sufferings, our miseries, are not the opposite of God's blessings. That, that the favor of Christ and the love of God toward us has not been lost because for a time we may experience hardship. Which, by the way, is why the prosperity gospel is so foul and toxic and no gospel at all. It, it, it preys upon the most vulnerable and exploits the most vulnerable in our world, and we should pray and work against it with all of our might and pray that the Lord would bring an end to the Osteens and the T.D. Jakes and the Paula Whites and all likewise with their false teachings. No, likewise, biblical theology is quite the contrary. It's interesting, so many times, even, in, even if you're not in a... a a prosperity gospel heresy teaching sort of church, even if you're in sort of a, a broadly vanilla evangelical church in America today, so often you'll go to that church and you'll hear a message which is basically how God can make your life better or how to employ Jesus with these 12 or 7 simple steps to make things better for you in your comfortable middle-class American lifestyle. 
As one theologian is fond of pointing out, our medieval forebears, our medieval brothers and sisters, our medieval ancestors would never have thought to go to church to hear a message like that. On the contrary, our medieval brothers and sisters went to church to have their miseries explained to them in light of biblical teaching, as opposed to leveraging biblical scripture to enhance our lives with much comfort and luxury. No. In fact, look at verse 12. The worst the world can do in all of its hatred against the church cannot and it will not thwart and may in fact provide the very best environment for the church's advance. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. That's certainly the case when we come to the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8, remember Stephen stoned to death for his faith in Christ Jesus. The crowds cheered on as they stoned him, Saul looking on approvingly. And a great persecution breaks out, and the church in Jerusalem is scattered. Now, at first blush, it looks like utter catastrophe for the spread of the gospel. And yet it turns out that the church is scattered precisely according to the program outlined by Christ in the opening book, in the opening verses of Acts. Remember what Jesus says? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And everywhere these believers went, they shared the good news about Jesus and the gospel spread and it advanced. And eventually Saul of Tarsus, who ravaged the church, is converted to faith in Christ Jesus. And he becomes that great missionary theologian and that apostle to the Gentiles. The gospel advanced in hostile conditions. The church grew. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, if we can borrow that language from Tertullian. That's what happened in the New Testament in the book of Acts, and that's what's happening in Exodus. And often it is what God designs by our trials in our own lives and in our life together as a church. Nothing accidental happens in God's economy. There are no accidents in God's sovereignty. There are no whoops, things by which God is caught off guard. He ordains all things which which come to pass. And many times in our own lives, individually and collectively, God brings hardship. He prunes the vine, to use that language from John's gospel. He prunes the vine so that it might blossom and bear fruit. And of course, we see here from Exodus, the growth of the people of Israel fills the Egyptians with dread, verse 12. And so they increase their efforts. See verse 13 and 14, they repeat for emphasis that same phrase there. The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Of course, Moses did not have a word processor. He doesn't have italics or bold or underline in order to get his point across. So this is his way of conveying that kind of emphasis. Repetition. God's people endure brutal slavery, and the worse it gets, the more they prosper. The more they prosper, the worse it gets. The the, the attempt to snuff them out on Pharaoh's part is just a cycle of futile effort. It's all in vain. He oppresses them harder and harder, They grow and grow all the more. God's blessing overcomes the hatred of the world. Do you see? The church, the Old Testament church in this case, the people of God expand. And so Pharaoh, frustrated by this, decides on a new strategy. Verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, 
If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. It's a brutal and bloody strategy designed to preserve the adult. Do you see that? The adult male, the adult male Hebrew slave labor force, kill the boys. Let the men live. We need slave labor. But at the same time, it makes sure that within a generation, the Hebrews would be gone. Kill the young boys. Let the girls live. We'll marry off their women to the Egyptian men. And within a generation, the Hebrews will be no more and pose a threat no longer. But look at verse 17. These two lowly Hebrew midwives, what heroines they are. They feared God, and they preserved the lives of the children. And then the story really begins to grip with ironies, doesn't it? (laughs) You you can almost imagine Pharaoh red-faced and steam coming out of his ears, fuming that every strategy that he concocts keeps getting thwarted. He keeps getting frustrated. Another obstacle keeps getting thrown in his way. And so he demands an explanation. He brings these midwives before him. And these women, you can almost imagine a, a wry grin on their faces. Well, you know, the Hebrew women are not like you Egyptians. They're vigorous, and frankly, they give birth before we can get there. What, do you, what are we supposed to do? And then there's no reason, actually, to assume that they're lying. It's rather a statement of fact. Ironic and humorous, though it might be, certainly, nevertheless, they were banking on that statement as they disobeyed the wicked commands of an ungodly king. I love how one man put it in his comments on this section of the text. Do you see some of the ironies here? Pharaoh, nameless Pharaoh, is being made a laughing stock of while two lowly Hebrew midwives' names are preserved for posterity and celebrated for their courage and faith, and their names are recorded in holy scripture and remembered forever. We don't know who Pharaoh was, Scholars debate. Maybe it was Ramesses I, maybe Ramesses II, but we don't know for sure. Meanwhile, these women are being celebrated, pointed out, highlighted. And notice, too, the design of Pharaoh is exactly the opposite of his desired outcome. The Hebrew population continues to grow, verse 20. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, how's this for irony? Because the midwives, who are to be the executioners of the Hebrew boys and stop the growth of the people of God, because they feared God, God gave them families so that in their blessing, they actually contribute to the expansion of the people of God and contribute to the frustration of Pharaoh. Irony upon irony upon irony. And then we come to verse 22. It's this raging climax Pharaoh, frustrated at every design and every which way he tries to go, angrier and angrier and angrier, he foments and he spills over into pure rage now. He tells the mob to take the matters into their own hands, destroy the Hebrew male children, just throw them into the Nile, let them drown, let them be destroyed. Do you see the competing claims here? The back and forth. Competing claims made between Pharaoh and the sovereign God between the plan of a pathetic earthly despot and the plan of a sovereign God of grace. Who's in control? Pharaoh thinks that it's him. Pharaoh believes that it should be him, that he should be in control of all the circumstances and situation. But no matter what he tries, the promises of God and the people of God prosper because the Lord reigns and never the malice of the world and never the hatred of the devil. No God the Lord reigns. 
Exodus 1, you see, is of course one more instance of that ancient animosity that was fixed by God between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent way back in Genesis chapter 3. That, that's the conflict. The, the lineage of those two seeds, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, the lineage of those two seeds you can trace all the way through Holy Scripture, ever the conflict between the people of God and the people of the dominion of Satan. There are kingdoms in conflict here, even in Exodus 1, but nothing can stop the advance and the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. We need to understand that our daily struggle with our own sin, with our own sorrow, with our own circumstances and situation, whether we're struggling with quiet hurt or open hostility, the things which we endure are nothing other than a local skirmish in a cosmic war that continues to rage. We see an iteration of it here in Exodus 1. You see an iteration of it in your own frustrations on Monday morning. But as we labor in that conflict, we are to remember two of the lessons that our passage teaches us. That evil is ultimately futile and self-defeating. Providence always prevails. He is able, our God, even over the malice and the cruel intent of Pharaoh, he is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, let us not grow weary in well-doing, brethren. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. I love how one another commentator put it. He says, Let us remember the example of Shifra and Pua, whose names, by the way, mean beauty and splendor. Doesn't that say it all? Beauty and splendor. That's these two women. The gospel of God, they adorn it by their conduct, trusting the promise of God rather than bowing to the edicts of wicked men. Let us remember these faithful women who trusted God, obeyed him, stood with his kingdom. And as we learn to imitate them in our own struggle, let us remember that like their struggle, it is part of a larger conflict and a cosmic battle. But learn too, as Shifra and Pua did by experience, that the battle belongs to the Lord, close quote. So a larger story, a wider conflict, and then finally and briefly, a firm foundation. It is hard to be a Christian today. We don't mean to downplay that or shrug it off as if eh, it's nothing. No, the pressure to conform to the norms of the world is incredible. Our high school students and our college students could probably speak to that better than most of us. To, to embrace a life driven by the pursuit of money, where sex is an absolute idol, where moral or philosophical absolutes are verboten. There are social, there are political pressures pushing Christian truth claims out of the public arena. People are losing their jobs and losing their livelihood, and in some cases worse, simply for believing what Christians have always believed. It is hard. But Exodus chapter 1 recalibrates our gaze. It reminds us that our lives are lived in the grip of a grand design and that we are secure amidst our trials, not because we have the resources to win the battle on our own, but in the end because Jesus Christ has triumphed. Pua and Shifra teach us to trust the covenant promises and see that God will make a way. It's been well over 505 years since the Protestant Reformation, but those stirring words of Martin Luther are true now more than ever. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, no thanks to those earthly powers, that word abideth. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Think about it like this. Pua and Shifra, 
if they'd given in, if they had bowed to the pressure, if they'd given in to the king's command, then the Hebrew people would have been wiped out. And long term, there would have been no virgin birth. There would have been no Jesus, no cross, no empty tomb. There would have been no gospel and there would have been no church in the world. We, we would not be here right now this morning praising the name of our Lord and Maker and Redeemer. But Almighty God worked by these two remarkable women to bring His sovereign design to fulfillment so that one day, born of a woman, born under the law, Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham, the child of promise, might redeem us from sin and death and hell. Which means, at the end of the day, Exodus 1 is a gospel text. I love how one commentator put it. Let me read a few sentences from him. It shows us, Exodus 1, it shows us how the sovereign God works the malice of Pharaoh and the faith of two midwives together to bring his son into the world by whom the kingdom of Satan has been shattered and defeated at Calvary and under whose rule one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that is where our security rests. Not in our faith, Not in our courage to face down trials that might come our way, but rather in Christ, who was made himself an object of malice and hatred by this world, who was nailed to a Roman cross, and who rose, nevertheless, in triumph, King of kings and Lord of lords. It is because the battle belongs to the Lord, and Jesus Christ reigns, that we find the strength today to stay in the fight and to press on even when the battle rages and we feel hard-pressed and beleaguered. The battle belongs to the Lord. Christ is risen. Satan has been toppled and his rule overthrown. And sitting on the throne of glory is the God-man, your elder brother, savior, and friend. Close quote. Oh, beloved brothers and sisters, as you rest on him and as you rest on his promises, you will find strength to stay in the fight and strength to press on. Praise God that the things we endure, the drama is part of a much larger story. The conflict is part of a much wider ancient conflict. But our hope rests on a sure and firm foundation, the unassailable covenant promises of God, which can never be thwarted. Praise God for his word to us today. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel because that is where our security rests. And because of it, we are safe. We thank you that our Savior reigns from your throne. So help us. Help us to remember that when trials and temptations come flooding upon us and overwhelming us, that truly the battle belongs to you, O Lord. And as we remember that, help us to stay in the fight. Seal your word to our hearts this day for your everlasting glory and our everlasting joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.